Hello and welcome to Ox Talks. I'm your host, Chris Oxley. And I invite you to follow me on an ever-evolving journey through the fascinating realms of psychology, leadership and neuroscience. While this podcast was originally crafted to cater to those navigating the intricate world of wealth management and private banking, I now view it as a personal odyssey, a chronicle of my captivating conversations with these particularly intriguing individuals. Together we'll unearth profound insights and priceless wisdom, igniting fresh passions that will drive growth and development in both our professional and personal lives. Inspired by the sheer wealth of knowledge and charisma in this field, my mission is to shine a spotlight on the curiously interesting individuals I'm privileged to encounter. And so I extend a warm welcome to all who share an interest in these subjects. So today's guest, Philip Grindell, is someone I believe that every high and ultra high net worth client advisor should have in their back pocket, just in case their clients find that there's a monster in the wardrobe. Philip is an expert in countering disputes, harassment, and concerns about threatening and worrying behaviours, typically working with high and ultra high net worth private clients, entrepreneurs, along with MPs, and even members of the royal family. But I'll hand over to Philip to explain exactly what it is he does. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's, been a, it's been a, I suppose, a fairly swift journey. But I mean, effectively, we now help prominent people, entrepreneurs, business leaders, counter sort of unwanted attention, disputes, harassment, and any threats and, and worrying behaviours. And a lot of that is focusing on their privacy, um, their reputation, and then their, their personal safety. And it really started in about 2016 when the Member of Parliament, Joe Cox, was assassinated effectively in the street. And um, Parliament decided they wanted a a bespoke team to look after them and look at these type of incidents and look at the threats and the abuse and what have you that they were receiving. And I was the person that was asked to go in and set up and run that team. And interestingly, like quite a few other professions, I guess, one of the issues was that this wasn't new behaviour in terms of the abuse and the threats and the intimidation. It was just that for many of them, they had just accepted it as part of the job. And I think until that point, and, and perhaps shortly afterwards, I think a lot of other public figures and people in business leaders, et cetera, had the same mindset. And our view was, no, that's not correct. You're not here to be abused and threatened and, and what have you. What was key was looking at, okay, my job was stop the next attack. So how do you do that? Well, you have to understand, obviously, the, the sort of landscape you're involved in. So how are high-profile people targeted? Because they're not targeted the same way as everyone else. They're not targeted in the same way as a domestic relationship, for instance, or a conventional homicide. And I'd worked in murders or homicide, depending on what you want to call it, for about eight years. So I'd, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd investigated quite a few of those type of investigations. I'd worked on the terrorism command, so I knew a bit about that. I'd worked on child abuse, so I had some background around that. But it, when you look at how high profile or prominent people. And in that, I don't necessarily mean celebrities, although they're included, but, you know, business leaders, entrepreneurs, journalists, anyone who, is, who has a, a kind of prominent landscape, a, a, a public profile, they are targeted in a way that is slightly different. And the threats and impact on them 
it is very different. And and however robust you are, and I've dealt with some of the most, arguably some of the most robust people in politics, everyone has a tipping point. And, you know, when you are receiving threats every single day and abuse and hostile communications and unwanted attention and everything else, it's difficult to know, well, what's real and what's just noise, if you like. And actually, there's a science behind it in the way that you can, in fact, interpret the genuine threats from the, the noise. Um, and so that's really what, what I specialise in, and that's what we brought back into Parliament. And by using those processes, we, we successfully stopped an attack about a year later on, a, on an MP called Rosie Cooper. And Diffuse, which is our consultancy, effectively came out of that because I looked at what was happening and, and what was happening is I was getting approached whilst in Parliament by lots of people saying, can you help me and can you help us? And the answer was always, no, I'm contracted to so only working with Parliament at the time as a detective from, from Scotland Yard. But it was quite clear that there was a gap and in that many people were, were not really managing this landscape with any real uh, scientific or, or kind of knowledge perspective. It was just, let's give you more security, which has zero impact. I mean, if you are, you know, you can be, you can have the best protection team in the world around you. You can have the best private security or corporate security or whatever else. But if every time you look at your mobile phone or every time you look at your emails, there's just bundles and bundles of abuse and threats and nastiness, your protection team has no impact on the psychological harm and the, the, the impact it has on your welfare. And within the commercial world, what was happening is, and what we've seen since then is, a significant increase in threats towards business leaders, chief executives and others. That delves back into the family because often the family get involved, the family get threatened, members of the family are, are um, mentioned in, in, in communications, etc. People get targeted at their home addresses. So there's lots of various issues there that don't get managed properly because people just don't really understand the real methodology behind those that are making these threats. And that's really what we seek to counter. Okay. What is a typical threat? I mean, do these start, do they typically start quite small threats and then build up? What's, what, what should people be looking for? Where do, where do these start? Is there generally a, a small threat that's that, to begin with and then it builds up over time or is it coming quite impactfully? How, how, do, how do these things start? There is no one size fits all. So everything we do is bespoke. But in essence, what generally happens is there is some form of grievance that is at the root cause of whatever the issue is that escalates. Grievances tend to be formed by one of four reasons, which is blame, loss, anger, or humiliation. And so somebody's going to blame you for something. Um, and it might be they're blaming you for how they've been treated, or might be blaming you for what's happened to their pension, or blame you for because they've lost their job. And then we move on to the loss aspect around they lose something, they lose their job, they lose their role. They lose, a, you know, they lose a pension, they lose their position, they lose their credibility, they lose their, 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 um, their identity, whatever that might be. And then they're angry. They're angry about how they've been treated. They're angry about, about a societal issue, a political issue. They're angry about um, how they've not been taken seriously. And then we have the humiliation angle. And we used to see this regularly when we had, you know, the kind of typical sort of you're being fired, get grab your cardboard box and we'll escort you out of the building. So you're being humiliated as you leave the building. 
we saw it actually, interestingly, in the judiciary where people were being sentenced to, um, you know, whether it was an imprisonment or anything else, and the magistrate or the judge would kind of humiliate them through their sentencing by, by the way in which they destroy their character, or have you. So these are the kind of four root causes of, of a grievance. And you can have one of those or you can have all four. It, you know, it's not a case of you need all four. I've only got three, so I'm not in problem. So someone will have a grievance. And what tends to happen is, is that they find themselves unable to resolve that grievance to a way in which they're satisfied. Now, the grievance can be completely made up. It can be completely their own perception. They may think something's happening when that's not true, um, but it's real to them. And so what happens is once they move beyond that grievance, when they realize or they think, I can't resolve this grievance through um, normal means or through a means in which I'm satisfied, they move on uh, along what we call this pathway where they then say, right, well, I'm going to have to resort to a different tactic in order to resolve this. And that tactic can be violence. I need to resort to violence to do this. And they go through a process of how they are going to become violent. Um, and what we're talking about there is there are two different types of violence. There is this, what we see is this reactive, this emotional, this outburst of violence where, you know, you get a pub fight or you get someone who's um, unhappy with the service they get in a shop and they just become violent or there is the domestic violence, very emotionally driven. What we're talking about here is the different type of, of violence. We're talking about a very slow burn, unemotional, targeted violence. So they're not reacting. It's a process they go through. Now, sometimes that process will end up in violence. And that's where we see some of the instances that I worked on um, in Parliament and in other areas of policing. And certainly with the, the attack on MPs, uh, you know, David, uh, with the most recent one and, and uh, Joe Cox and others was a slow burn towards violence. But equally, it can be a slow burn towards some other act, such as a reputational act. We're going to destroy your reputation. We're going to publish stuff on the internet. We're going to become an insider threat because of the way you've treated us. We're going to make threats. And some of those threats that they make are communicated. So they will, they will send, we're going to do this, or I'm going to do this, or I'm going to attack your family or everything else. Um, in general terms, in general terms, people that are going to pose an actual threat very rarely make a direct threat to the person they're going to target. So whilst we can't say in every case that's the fact, it's about 5% of people actually go on to do something who make threats. So in, in many ways, if somebody says, I'm going to do something, I'm going to come and kill you, I'm going to do this, whatever, in, in many ways, you can, you can arguably almost eliminate them straight away. Now, clearly, you still need to look at them because, because there is this very, very small chance that they, that they may do something. But, but in most instances, they don't. In most instances, those people that go on to cause a genuine threat or pose a genuine threat will do other things. They'll do other behaviours. They'll do other linguistic things they'll do to leave clues. They behave in certain ways. These are all proven methodologies. There's, there's, about eight different methodologies or eight different things they can do. They don't need to do all of them. They only need to do one of them. But when you learn them and when you know them, you can then spot a genuine threat from just noise. So that's exactly what happened when I looked at the threat to Rosie Cooper, which came in on a piece of scrap of paper, really, and I had six lines. 
And I was able to pick out three or four of those indicators straight away and say, that's a real threat. And so unless you've got that expertise and you know what you're looking for, you simply will not find it. So you can be the best investigator, you can be the best researcher, you can have the best open source or whatever else you want to call it. If you don't know what you're looking for, you won't find it. So that's where the real expertise comes in to better look at a threat and say, yes, I think that needs further attention or yes, we need to really look at this or to better say, no, you don't need to worry about that. That's just noise. Are you able to give us any insights into what you're looking for, what the differences are um, in, in a threat? What are you, you know, just one aspect of it that's something that would trigger you to go, okay, this, this is going to be a problem? Well, certainly I mentioned earlier this pathway, which, which the research call it the pathway to violence. I tend to call it to a pathway to an intended act because it doesn't always end in violence. And so the pathway starts by this person having a grievance and they move on from that grievance because they recognize they can't resolve it. And, and they, they'll move on by saying things like, you know, um, you wait. What, what, what their theory is, what they're, what they're thinking is, you effectively have backed me into a corner. I can't see any way else to resolve this other than to do something, to take some form of action, which again, you know, might be reputationally, might be violent, might be something else. But what they're doing is saying, you've backed me into a corner. So they'll, they'll indicate things by leaking it linguistically by saying, right, I've had enough. You give me no other choice. So what they're saying is, I can't resolve it in the way I want to resolve it. We can't resolve it. So I'm going to do something. So we're looking for um, those sort of linguistics where someone is indicating that they, they feel there's no other way to resolve this. But then there's, there's, there's quite a few others. I mean, there's one, you know, obviously fixation, someone who's fixated on something is another indicator. And that person will either be fixated on the person, which is often the sort of celebrity type one, or they'll be fixated on some form of cause or ideology or something. So we've seen it with, with um, the attacks on politicians, as an example. In, invariably, attacks on politicians are all ideologically driven. So they're not actually targeting the specific MP because it's something the specific MP has done. They're attacking the MP because they're a representation of the state and they're angry with something around the state, such as the way that their perception of Muslims have been treated or the, the immigration or something of that. And again, we see this quite a lot when we're looking at CEOs or board members that are being threatened, because again, very often they're the representation of the organization. It doesn't mean that that particular board member or that, you know, that CEO or that director of HR has physically done anything and is responsible for something, it's because they represent the company and their, their grievance is with that company. It might be how they've been treated. It might be something the company does in terms of its services. It might, be, um, it might not be meeting the kind of eco-credentials of, of an activist and therefore they blame the chief executive or, the, or the, you know, someone on the C-suite for that. So it can be both ideologically or personally. So we see personally when we see Stalkers targeting celebrities, for instance, um, where they, they kind of believe that this character that they play is a real person. And they often feel rejected by them because, because then they realize actually, well, hang on a minute, you know, I've, I've fallen in love with you and I've, I've, uh, I think there's a real future here, but you've just announced on Instagram you've got a boyfriend. Well, that's not, that's not right. So, I'm, you know, so they, they have this kind of um, men, very much mental health, very much perceptions around what's going on, delusional behaviors. But in terms of, you know, threatening to business leaders and, and other prominent figures, 
you know, there doesn't have to be any mental health involved. It can be, it can be delusional, but it doesn't have to be. Very much it's angry, anger around policies. We've seen that quite a bit recently around around CEOs that have been targeted because of um, you know, business deals they've done, because they're engaging with a particular country, because they're engaging, they're not, they're not satisfying eco credentials, as we say. A whole raft of things. People think their pensions are being destroyed and all sorts of stuff. So that's very much about they're fixated on something. And we look for the behavior of a fixated person within um, either the communication or when we're investigating their behavior. So when we're looking at once they become what we call a person of concern and we're investigating them, does their behavior suggest they are fixated on something? And if they are, then that probably means they're going to be a problem. And then there's other ones such as leakage. So whilst I said earlier on that they rarely will make a threat directly, they will often leak information around what, they, what their intentions are to other people. And there's lots of theories about why they do that. One is because they, um, you know, they don't want to be forgotten. They want, to be, they want people to know that, who they were. Um, you know, another one is because they, they want some sort of credibility around it. So they're telling other people they're going to do this. And we've seen this from everything from um, you know, the terrorist videos that we saw back in the, uh, the early 2000s with the attacks on London, uh, on, uh, London and what have you. They, you know, they, they, they leaked their videos. Now, they filmed those videos before they did the act. We've seen it in the US in terms of some of the school shootings and what have you, where pupils who are going to be doing something will say on social media or they'll communicate to a friend, you know, don't go to school tomorrow. Or they'll say things like, watch the news. Tomorrow is going to be a big day. You, you'll find out why. And what they're doing is they're leaking information. And, and in fact, the Rosie Cooper one is exactly the same. The individual concerned leaked his intentions to a, a closed group that he met who, who were his fellow white nationalist group, National Action, in a meeting above a pub, he told them what his intentions were. It's a very common thing that they leak their intentions. So we're looking for that. And that's why we're saying to people, and that's why the police will often say, and, and, and the other uh, uh, law enforcement teams often say, you know, if you hear something, tell us, because that could be the final jigsaw. Because had that person who was intending to kill Rosie Cooper not leaked it, and had the person who heard it hadn't reported it, you know, we'd probably never know about it. So it is important that when someone hears something and they think that's a bit odd, trust your instincts and report it. Um, and you can do it anonymously if that suits you. But certainly, you know, you, you might get something at work where a, an employee says to another employee who's, who's, has a grievance, you know, you wait, you'll see, they're not going to get away with this. But what do they mean? So unless you actually investigate it properly and you look at the individual and you think, well, you know, have they got a grievance? Can we resolve the grievance? You know, what's the, what are they doing in the background? What are they doing offline? How are they behaving? Um, you're never going to understand that there's actually a growing threat behind. So there's lots of, there's these different indicators, which you have to know what they are and you have to recognize them when you're, when you're investigating. You've mentioned a couple of times around a growing threat. And, and I'm thinking, just, just thinking out loud a little bit here is in terms of with technology, the changes in technology and, and, and a switch from necessarily physical threat to online threat. And as you say, you know, you can put a, a bigger security team around an individual, yet they've, they've still got their phone and, and these individuals who, who might have a grievance can get an instant access to that. And are you seeing over your time and experience, are you seeing an, an uplift in potential threats because they've got 
much easier pathways on access to individuals now through social medias and phone contacts and and and, and these sorts of things. So is that is this on the rise now? And we're just we're just not very aware of what's going on because obviously you work behind the scenes quite a bit, and I suspect a huge amount of what you do is prevention from things even getting to escalation points. But is it? Is it becoming easier now for people to access these individuals and and actually build up their their grievances, if you like? Yeah, there is, and, and um, I mean to pick up on a point you there that you mentioned there, and everything we do is preventative; it's not predictive. We can't predict who's going to do something. So what we're looking at is we're identifying those people who are becoming a concern, and we're we're then investigating to see well actually are they a concern or not. The online world in general makes life easier for them. And there's, there's two issues, really. One is people who are fixated on an individual, on a cause or anything else, they will spend hours, days, weeks, months, even years sometimes researching everything about the person they're going to target online. One of the issues is, is the amount of information, private information, that is available online. And so one of the things we do when, we, when we're looking at clients, and we've had, I think we've had three requests this week already to do this for, for various um, clients, is a vulnerability assessment. If, I, you know, if an adversary is going looking, what will they find? So we're looking at the, the open web, the deep and dark web, and we're looking at forums as well, where you can have paid for access or other access to forums. What actually is out there about me? And what's interesting is I fairly regularly hear, oh, you won't find much about me because I'm not on social media. Well, that's a complete red herring because first and foremost, we're going to find a lot about you. We're going to find all your personal details, how old you are, your date of birth, where you were born. We're going to find where you live. We're going to find, um, you know, what job you do. We can probably find all your, all your email addresses and passwords and all that sort of stuff. And we'll find lots of images of you probably. Um, and some of that is because they're on public databases and other databases. And some of that is because other people post material about you. And so even if you're not online, there's loads of sufficient uh, detail on there to, to create a profile. And an example of that is I, I had a client who came to me exactly that scenario. And there was so much data that we could find. We could create a Facebook profile for him. So convincing was the profile that we reached out to his children and they all became friends on Facebook because they were convinced it was his profile. And that's purely because the amount of data that's out there. And so that's how people will target you. They'll find out all that data. So if they can say, I know you've got two young children and I know they go to ABC school, and then they can say to you in a message, something around that, that's going to intimidate you. So we need to make sure that we're trying to limit the amount of private data that is actually there. But then going on to your second point in terms of access to you, people can access you because they can, they can access you on social media. So if you've got a Twitter page or you've got an Instagram or you've got anything else out there, they can direct message you, they can communicate with you. So that's instant access to you. They can probably work out what your email address is based on, um, you know, what company you're working for or where you, where you work or, or, you know, often your emails are on, on, um, on the internet accessible because You've you've you know logged onto a website or you've purchased something and it's you know it's all that data's on there. I mean, if you just think literally of something about like, you know a Nectar card or something like that. Well, when you sign up to a Nectar card, not only do you give them all your data, you actually allow them to share that data. Um, so you know your name, your home address, all that sort of data is on there. And so cyber criminals very often 
they're not looking to hack you and me. Why they're not going to bother? It's just going to get our details. They're going to hack everyone's details by going onto Nectar, by hacking Sainsbury's, or by hacking Apple, or by ha- hacking somebody else, a bank or something, where they can then steal all of their data and sell that on the dark web. And so this is called breach data. Um, and again, that's something else we're looking for because again, that causes you a a, a risk. And we see this through identity fraud. And we see, you know, one of the things I always chuckle to myself about is whenever I look on LinkedIn and I see somebody announcing they're in a new position. Because for the cyber criminals, that's manna from heaven. Because not only do they know you've just started at a new company, they also know you're not going to be that familiar with all the all the settings and all the goings on in that business. And the amounts of um, you know, various cyber attacks in terms of phishing or other things that new employees, particularly in positions of authority, will get just because they've announced, oh, I'm now the new position, I'm now the new director of X, Y, and Z at so-and-so company. And the amount of CEO fraud that goes on where people say, you know, or the CEO said, can you, can you just transfer X, X to Y because he's in a, you know, on a flight at the moment, he can't be contacted, but it's really urgent. And people think, well, I don't know, I guess that must be real because, you know, this is what the process is. And so they do things that they would never normally do. So, you know, that leaking of data on, on LinkedIn, for me, we shouldn't be announcing I've got a new position. But yeah, people are far more accessible. Uh, you know, I've dealt with situations where people have rung up chief executive, uh, the, the PA or the chief executive posing to be the new director and saying, listen, I've lost his mobile number. It's really sorry, but I need to get hold of him urgently. Can you, can you give me the number? And that mobile number has been passed. And then before you know it, he or she, he was a he in this particular occasion, is receiving thousands of phone messages and text messages and everything else um, by uh, eco-warriors who, who are trying to uh, shut him down. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's that these people will, will, will research, they'll, they'll use the data and information, they're very good at what they do, um, and they will target you online. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm hearing some of those points that you're talking about in terms of getting access, finding information, and it almost sounds like part of what I do as my day job when I'm when I'm conducting searches to try and identify people, try and get contact details and whatnot. And and it is surprisingly straightforward to to gather those details, isn't it? It's um it's quite alarming when you when you put it into perspective. Obviously, I have good intentions, but in the wrong hands, those those um that that sort of information can can be very you know used for different things. Um, and it's I, I noticed a post that you put up um the other day, which was uh take the old ultimate safety test for private family offices. Um, I've got a couple of clients that are are family offices and I know particularly one of them I've spoken about in the past, how he, he actively tries to keep as much data and information off of the internet. Yet I can still find as what you've said earlier on pictures and and images, potentially especially from family where children have posted and they're not as conscious of these risks as, as, as what he might be. Um, I wonder if you could walk us through that, what, what the, um, what the safety test for, for private family offices looks like. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a short test we've put together. It's about 15, 16 questions or something like that. Um, and they tend to be kind of yes, no, don't know, um, answers. And it's, it's really designed to get people thinking about the various issues, which they're probably not thinking about. Um, I mean, you made a very good point. You know, we, we deal with family offices and you, you get multi-generational family offices where the, um, the patriarch or the matriarch of the family is very private. You know, they, they're the one that um, may, have, may have created that wealth or, the, or perhaps inherited it many years ago, probably before the internet age. 
and they are very private. They're very discreet. They're not particularly flashy or anything of that nature. But as we come back through the generations, of course, people's values change. And the younger generation have grown up with the internet and with social media and have a very different relationship with the internet and social media and are far more likely to share information than previous generations. Um, you know, we've done things like when we've investigated various things. I remember one particular private family office with, you know, we looked at some of their uh, social media, et cetera, and we identified a £6 million painting in a specific room in a specific building. And we did that because one of the younger generation had put a, a selfie up and this picture just happened to be in the background. Now, that's what criminals will do. They'll target you because they'll do their research before they come in. Now, we found out where it was because we could also find the plans of the house. And so we could work out when they were leaving because we could also find things like the tail number of their private jet. So we could actually track when they were leaving and then we could know exactly what, you know, we could get a buyer for the painting and we could um, target the exact room we want to go into to steal that painting. So that's how a professional burglary team will operate. They don't just kind of smash their way in you know, on a whim. They, they know what's going on and they'll, they'll track you. So there are lots of different areas um, that do this. And, and what often happens is, be it, be it in private family offices, in corporates, et cetera, is the, the security they may have employed will be very good at what they do, but this isn't their specialism. And it's like anything. It's, it's you know, if you, go and, if you go and see, you know, if you get a heart problem, you go to a cardiologist. You don't go to a GP. Well, if you have a problem with these sort of things, you come to a specialist. You don't go to just a generalist security professional. Um, and if you go, you know, if you think that your close protection team will have any understanding of this, um, despite what they might tell you, then you're wrong because they simply won't. So it's about giving the family offices, be it their security or be it their chief of staff, et cetera, access to a series of questions which just get them thinking about their various issues. And then um, what we do is we can follow up and, and, and actually have a proper strategy session with them about how we, can, how we can improve their safety. Now, everything we try and do is it has to work. It's not just, we're going to do this for a whim. I've done all the research on it. I've worked with politicians, so I know in terms of um, the, the, the four million pound budget that we had to spend on their physical security was researched really heavily so that they only got things that actually prevented crime or an attack. We didn't get things they just wanted. It had to have an impact. So for instance, CCTV, everyone assumes that CCTV is the panacea for security. It has absolutely zero preventative power. You know, it's great to watch something happening and it goes for evidential value, but it will not stop anything. So in fact, the research tells you the only place it has preventative measures is a multi-story car park. But everyone puts CCTV up and, and listen, I've got CCTV at my house, but I'm doing it for evidence gathering, not because I think it's going to stop anything. But, I, but unless you understand things, if you're not careful, you're going to get various people, security professionals and otherwise, advising you to do things that actually won't have any impact. But the purpose of the test is really just to get people thinking about these issues. It must be difficult at times. How do you balance the need for security and safety with these individuals? And we'll stay on the family office side of things, but also maintaining their personal individual freedoms. Like, if, especially in today's society, where you know younger generation, it's it's so social media based. How do you how do you get that balance? I mean, is there 
how, how do you get buy-in from the younger generation to, to accept these sorts of things? Because is it sometimes a case of until something happens, they just carry on the way they are? What, what, how does that work? Yeah, I think, I think that very often they will reach out after a crisis has occurred. So they, they are rarely proactive in terms of their um, security. And, what, and if they are proactive, it'll be around, we need an alarm, we need a CCTV camera, we need this, that, and the other. And we need, you know, we're going to be, we're going to be really reactive or really proactive around having cyber. But that's not actually going to be of much value to them because they're probably not going to get targeted. They'll go elsewhere and get your information. But um, we often get called in when there is a crisis. So they are being targeted. Something has happened. Can you come and help us? Um, can you investigate who this is, what it is, and can you help us resolve it? And it's really on the back of that that we often then say, look, let's have a conversation around how we can improve this and prevent this happening in the future. Now, you know, when you work with politicians who want those same things, they want their privacy, they want to feel safe because they don't feel safe. But at the same time, they have a very active social media presence because of the very nature of what they're doing. And they um, live a public life in terms of they are you know, going on TV shows, they are attending various places and telling people when they're going to be there because they want people to turn up. You've got to be able to factor all that in. You know, I, you're, you can't say to a client, right, you know, you can't do anything. I'm not going to let you do anything. That's the only way I can make you feel safe is I'm going to put you in a gilded cage and you're going to stay there and you're going to be safe. Nobody wants that. So you have to be able to have that deep conversation with the clients to understand what their wants are, what their wants and needs are, how they want to live, how we can, how we can work around that, how we can provide advice and gathering, what actually they do want to do. You know, in terms of the younger generation and what have you, we have the same conversations with them. But ultimately what we often do is we, we, you know, we do a service of monitoring whatever happens. So we'll physically monitor everything that goes on in there amongst their family members, amongst their family office, at the various locations, and anything that flags up that may be a potential risk, such as an image that goes out that may be an image that could cause concern or might reveal certain details, or you know they might have a private party. And all of a sudden, we're seeing leakage of information around particular guests that are arriving. Um, you know, all that can be flagged immediately, and then we can potentially have posts taken down by whoever's taken, whoever's put it up. We can, you know, if necessary, we can say we think you need additional security. Or we can investigate various things and say we've identified who this is. It's an insider threat. It's a member of your staff. This is who it is. And then we can present them with that and, and um, you know, they can do what they want to do with that. Alternatively, you know, we've got clients that we monitor and, and vary, you know, vary the stuff that's coming up and we deal with it and we don't even tell them about it because that's not what they want to hear. They don't want us to tell them every single day, oh, by the way, your credit card details have been on the dark web and we've got rid of them. Um, so we just do it. Um, and we only go to them when there is something significant that we think they need to know about in terms of a threat or something. Um, but we're working with them in terms of them telling us, listen, these are my, these are my destinations. These are the events I'm going to the next 10 days. And we'll flag all those events so that if anyone mentions any of those locations or those events along with our clients, then we know that there's some issue and we can then look at it and, and make a decision around the vulnerability of them. Now, I used to do this with the royal family. So I've done this with the Queen and with, with other high members, the fact the King as he is now and others. And they don't cancel. 
So you're going to have to find a way around it. You're going to have to, you know, be able to operate around them in terms of the security protocols you're putting in. Now, clearly within the police and in the, in the, in the government sector, you know, you've got armed assets and all sorts of things to protect them, which you won't have in the private sector. No matter how good their protection teams are, they're not armed, whoever they think they are. So, you know, you need to be able to operate in a way that you're going to assume that they're going to go and you've got to manage it. Now, sometimes that is engaging with law enforcement and saying, look, we've got this threat. Can you help us? But what you can't be doing and saying it to the private clients all the time is somebody said boo on, the, on, the, uh, on social media, you need to cancel everything. They, they, they pay us to make the right decisions or actually be able to evaluate and assess properly and only tell them and disturb them when there's something they need to know about. Yeah. Um, and what, what about something obviously I talk about quite a lot is, is, is recruitment into family offices. And when you work with a family office and these prominent figures and we've got individuals coming into their circles, is that part of your role as well? So you do background checks on these individuals and you make sure that there's not or at least not a high potential of threat there. And how, how, what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, this, this, is, this is actually a bit of a bugbear of mine because I think I see this quite a lot in offices and other, other establishments where you get high-level recruitment. You know, you're, when you're recruiting people at sort of high levels particularly, it's an expensive process. And if you get it wrong, it's an even more expensive process to clear it all up. So what often we see is due diligence being something of a tick-the-box exercise. And in fact, very often, it's a process they go through after they've selected the person, which seems absurd, really. And sometimes it's not even done until a person's in, in situ, um, which is even more ridiculous. So we provide an intelligence package that we provide to clients, and we will investigate that individual before they have been recruited, sometimes before they've even been interviewed. Because what we're looking for is, okay, well, you know, Nobody ever gives a reference to somebody that's going to give them a bad reference. So we can pretty much ignore those. Um, but what, what is it you don't know about this individual? So, you know, they say they've done various things. Well, actually, can we prove they've done various things? You know, or is that just what they're saying on their CV and their LinkedIn profile? But also it's about, can we look at their lifestyle and see are there any issues within their lifestyle? So can we evidence where there is evidence of, for instance, overspending? They're living outside, they're well outside their means, and there's no, there's no way we can demonstrate how they're doing that. Now, it might well be they come from, you know, they've got their own private income or they've got, you know, wealth or something else or, or, or their partner's particularly earning a lot of money, et cetera. Well, that's fine. But if, if that isn't the case, then where are they getting that money from? Do they, have a, do they have sort of addictions we can see? Now, that addiction might be shopping. It might be gambling. It might be drugs. It might be all sorts of things. But wouldn't you want to know that before you employ someone, particularly if you're bringing them into your family office or they're going to be on your yacht or something? But equally, what about who are they connected with? So you're bringing them into the family office. Would you want to know, as an example, if you're investing as, as a family office into um, oil and gas and, or other, other assets of that nature, would you want to know that their daughter or their daughter's friend is an eco-activist? Is that going to bear some... Uh, impact on whether you want that person working in your employment and whether that might cause a vulnerability. So what we're looking for is those issues that might pose a risk. And it, it might well be, okay, now I know all this, I can ask them about this in an interview. So you can have a better interview with them. And actually you can talk through these issues with them um, because they may well be a, 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 a way they can say, well, actually, this is, you know, actually we won a million pounds in the lottery a year ago. And that's why we're, we're do, you know, we, we do do, uh, we've been shopping a lot or something. So it's about, it's about clarity of information, being informed. That's what, that's what 
due diligence and investigation should be. But here's the thing about it. Too often what we see, and we, and we see it in government agencies sometimes as well, is that, and we hear, we hear politicians talking about it very often and commentators without really understanding it. Everyone talks about vetting. We need to have better vetting. Well, vetting, intelligence test, due diligence, call it what you want, is a snapshot in time. What about if things change? What about in three months' time after they've, you've employed them or six months' time after you've employed them or a year after you've employed them, they're suddenly going through a really messy divorce and it's costing them a fortune. So all of a sudden, they're financially vulnerable. Is that important to you? Do you, need to, do you think that's relevant if, you've got, if they've got the, the, the keys to your, your safe? So when you do vetting or due diligence or investigations or anything of that nature, it needs to be some degree of continuous process. Now, it can be obviously self-disclosure, which is great, but are people really going to disclose the things that they're, they're trying to hide? Or it can be, let's have a review. We have a six-monthly review of everything. Because the truth of the matter is, if you have somebody in place and they are going to cause problems to you, it's going to cost you an absolute fortune. If only illegal costs were for them suing you for you know, unfair dismissal or whatever else. So you know, I think this is where people get it wrong is they, they, they do their due diligence or whatever they want to call it, and they think that's it, we're safe. That's the easy bit. The bit is keep making sure you stay safe. And if you look at, if you know, we did one, we did a few recently with, with um, yachting, in the yachting world. You know, if you're going to send your family off on a lovely holiday on a yacht, wouldn't you want to know exactly who's on that yacht with them or who's on that yacht with you? Would you want to know, make sure that there's no one on that yacht that actually is going to cause me a real problem out here when I'm up, we're out here, middle of the ocean. Don't you want to know who they are? Really? So that's what we do. You said that a majority or, or quite a few of the clients come to you after there's been an event of some, some way, shape or form. And I wonder, do you, do you have intermediate, what I would call intermediate relationships? So you might work with, so do, I, I would see individuals who have access to high net worth or ultra high net worth individuals would be people like private bankers. So relationship managers, investment managers, wealth managers of that description. Do you work with these individuals at all to, to try and educate them, to, to, to get them into getting the client into the right mindset around security risks? Is that something that, you've, that you channel into and, and, and work towards? Yeah, I mean, we have uh, a lot of our work is referrals from intermediaries. Sometimes they're lawyers, sometimes they're wealth managers, sometimes they're private household managers, etc. Very often we, uh, we make an assumption that people are thinking about these things on behalf of their clients and invariably they're not because why would they? That's not their specialism. They're thinking about what they're brilliant at and what they're helping their clients with. I think also it, you know, it, it's a difficult subject sometimes to approach with somebody to say, you know, I, we've employed you to increase our investments. Okay, but have you thought about this? So I think that's quite challenging at times. But yeah, I mean, certainly we work with intermediaries. We work with a lot of intermediaries who, who are very well respected and, and you're absolutely right, have access to those, those families and those individuals. And, um, you know, and that's what we get referrals from. When we get referrals between families and between high net worth individuals who've, who we've previously worked with or are currently working with and I invariably ask them, you know, how did you hear about me? And they say, oh, well, actually I work, you know, you work with so-and-so and they told me about you and all that. So, so yes, I mean, we, you know, we continually try to work with or, or, or educate and, and, and talk to other 
service providers to to uh, to our, our client base and, and what have you, because at the same time, you know, we're also looking for people that we can refer to as well, because our clients will often, we often find out, you know, some of the real skeletons in their wardrobes. And so sometimes it's, you know, it's, it's, it's helpful for us to be able to say, actually, we know someone we think can help you with that. And so it's not one-sided. It's very much, it's much, very much a, a, a mutual relationship where we want to have our own cohorts of experts that we can advise and say to our clients, we think there's someone that we'd love to introduce you to. And we do do that. Um, but of course, we could always, always meet new people who, who, you know, who are not currently involved with and, and um, build those relationships. Yeah. And um, I'd, I'd like to think that uh, wealth managers and whatnot would be listening to this conversation. And I just want to pick up on what you said around it's a difficult conversation to have with your clients. But ultimately, we, we know that the very best relationship managers, whether you be legal accountancy, wealth or whatever it might be, are always thinking about wider services, and that might not even be directly involved in what they do. So this sort of security management, it can really I, I would say, reinforce a relationship with a particular client. So as a basis, how could potentially an accountant lawyer or, or, or wealth manager address that or begin the process of asking some simple questions around this to get that client thinking about you know, potentially their security? How, what, what might be a good base starting point to, to make this more comfortable for them? Well, I would suggest that they, uh, they take our... Uh, our, our um Ultimate safety session of private offices. All the uh, the questions are there, really, and that, that's what it does. It opens those conversations. It, it it's it's designed to do that. It's designed to get people thinking. We've got you know three or four or five different tests on on our on our on our um, our database on various subjects in terms of harassment, for instance, harassment and unwanted ascension. We've got one on that as well. And I, I would definitely say if you're working with a private family, encourage them to take the test because it will get them thinking. It may well be that they've got everything in hand, which is brilliant, and you know, and that's that's obviously what we would want them to have and, and to encourage them to have. I, I, you know, I'd like to say that you know, one thing we're not is we're not in the business of selling people stuff they don't need. So it isn't a kind of sales gimmick that we're going to jump on the back of it straight away and start bombarding you with material, etc. You know, do we have a newsletter? Yes, we do. Do we have a podcast? Yes, we do. So listen to those. There might be some bits on there that are really interesting or um, people that work in that industry. But um, I think we all hopefully want the same thing, which is we want those, you know, our clients to have the best life they can have, to enjoy what they've earned and, 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 or have and, and to do it in the, in the safest environment. Because if that happens, actually it benefits everybody. And the whole concept behind Diffuse is that people feel safer. And so why do we say that? Well, because my previous experience of working in security environments and in the, in the in the police etc is you know I can make anybody safe I can put you behind a gilded cage and you're safe but you won't feel safe and actually it's only when you feel safe that you live your best life if you're if you're a business leader and you're not feeling safe then your mind often is elsewhere you're we know as an example that psychologically people who are targeted become very paranoid and very hypervigilant we know their decision making changes and is impacted. I had politicians that would come to me and say to me, you know, I'm thinking about voting tonight on this cause, but I'm thinking about voting kind of this way rather than what I really believe in so I don't get abuse and threats. So we know that this impacts the people. So it's in everyone's interest that people feel safer. And if you feel safer and you're psychologically feeling safer, 
then you're going to perform better. You're going to be less stressed. You're going to, you know, you, you know, you don't want to be sat at work all day worrying about, I hope my family are safe at home. I hope the kids aren't getting kidnapped from school. Um, all that sort of nonsense. So, so, you know, the whole purpose of what we do is that. And, and I think, you know, if you're a wealth manager or you're a lawyer or anyone else, you're going to want that for your clients as well because you want them to be successful. So I think, you know, take the test, see where you come, have a conversation with us if you're concerned about it. If we can't help you, then we will direct you to someone that we can, that we vetted and we know is the real deal because there's an awful lot of people out there that that um, we wouldn't recommend. And there's a few that we would. And if we can put you in touch with those that we think will really help you, then we'll, we'll do that. Excellent. Well, I, I think we've highlighted some really important topics here and, and, and the work that you do is is incredibly important, I think, especially to uh, the communities that, that I'm in and it's, it's, it's a vital service, really. So I hope the right people are hearing this and um, and, and can take away some ideas and, and ultimately uh, uh, um, be introduced to you and, and, and find your business. Because uh, as we know, with social media and everything that's going on, this is, this is I think your skill sets are going to be more and more valuable and, and become more and more needed to individuals. So it's a, a very important, um, very important area. So look, thank you for coming on. I think that's a really good good time for us to, to, to wrap this up and um, it's been super informative and as I say I hope the right people hear this and we can get this out there more and um, it's it's yeah it's incredibly important thank you for your time it's a real pleasure Chris thank you for having me thank you for joining me on another episode of Ox Talks it's an absolute privilege to explore the fascinating intersection of these fields with our incredible guests. And if you found inspiration in our conversation, I encourage you to not only subscribe to Ox Talks on your preferred podcast platform, but also to seek out and follow our guests too. Anticipation is already building for our next guest, and I sincerely hope you'll join us for the upcoming episode of Ox Talks. Thank you for being a part of the Ox Talks family, and we can't wait to have you with us again soon.